0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings. This is Abayomi Zikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway. Uh, today is Sunday, December the 19th, uh, 2021. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to uh Remind our listeners that uh, later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing efforts by the Ethiopian government to defend uh, the country against imperialist threats uh, coming from the United States. Sudanese youth and workers demonstrated in the thousands today against the military regime, uh, which is consolidating its authority since the coup earlier this year. The World Health Organization is still pointing out the vaccine inequality prevailing internationally surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Congo Brazzaville president, uh, Dennis Sassou Nguesu, uh, has gone into quarantine after possibly being exposed to the coronavirus. In the second hour, we look again at the issues involving political prisons in the United States, uh, focusing on Russell Maroon Schultz, uh, who just made his transition on Friday, and Mumia Abu-Jamal, who still struggles for his freedom in the state of Pennsylvania. Finally, we review uh, some of the most important questions involving Africa and the world, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
2: I am am la Le kinga y mingina balinga nalipotova moniyote sesaratinga soni yangana yo mabanzu kala coleta boko olingoyo. Ba na lucia mingi na monia na kei mingi na baninga Ali bongo moniote, estará aqui, gançoni, yanga cayoma vazou na coleção, na sepera ni mama, que musika de mão se na na ni mama, que ke maqué a La canne si inga i papa mama, longoya sona dallezza dal caffè, la lungo e con sangai, uko angua no coleza. La sepera nini gaibona mama, si monsika baboti babo sioko, solo la gaina nani mama, mi semake angusa ili Naka nisi mingi inga imwana papa Dongo yonso nazali sena domkape Nalongo la basusie koko nisangai Uko wangu walo okoleta Uko wangu walo okoleta i nini a mother, i mama? i na a mother, i mama a mother, I'm a mother, i I'm a mother, I'm a I'm a little go d'y contre la i
3: Dokolo moko e, balongoli e, mpanzi moko
2: e, balongoli e, motabi moko e, aye aye, yona Como la mata ni como la sanifeo como la mata ya mala ni tapa ya mala vive sama bana, como la mata y fri Como cabón, dale me que la papa, este masamo <muchas> que le valiereo so va a ah te va ngoba ninga
3: Man. Opa!
2: I am a good in a lava. People
3: will be for the ticket, but so I am. People will be for the ticket, but so I am.
2: People will be for the ticket, but so I am. People will be for Na tinga na kamana na ma Na 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 Nalebi, <laughs> Nalebi, The Lord, you be able to Are me sagai wana na boy wana zo na boy na gai Lena fire da boy, boy. I am a little bit of a girl. I am a little bit of a girl. I am No, no, Thank you. Mama Oka Thank because...
1: Welcome back. Uh, You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikawe. We want to move right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation in Ethiopia, and according uh, to the Ethiopian Herald, in an article by Yosef Andres, it says that the recently published opinion on the New York Times exposes that the U.S. is demonizing Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, for his successful efforts in thawing uh, Ethiopian and Eritrean relations uh, that has been in deadlock for two decades, uh, experts on the course uh, told uh, Sputnik International. According to the Sputnik report, the U.S. has long sought to isolate Eritrea on the world stage, the reign of the TPLF-led Ethiopian regime. The TPLF was a major U.S. war-on-terror partner in the early uh, 2000s. Talking uh, to independent journalist, uh, researcher, and editor of One of Africa TV, Elias Amari uh, said that uh, the U.S. has further demonized Eritrea and imposed sanctions on it in 2009 instead of putting pressure on the TPLF regime to accept the boundary demarcation. The Ethiopian Eritrea Boundary Commission was linked. Uh, The key had been linked uh, by the key town of Badme uh, to Eritrea, uh, which was violated uh, by the TPLF in the aftermath of the agreement. Uh, These unjust sanctions that were imposed on Eritrea at the United Nations Security Council were finally lifted in November of 2018 once peace was achieved with Ethiopia. So all along, the TPLF regime and his patrons in Washington have been asked against peace between Eritrea and Ethiopia, Amari said. Indeed, uh, comments uh, quoted uh, by Walsh, a writer of the recently posted opinion piece on the New York Times uh, website, reflects uh, the U.S. Uh, has uh, such an attitude. Another expert uh, who is a writer, independent analyst, and Horn of Africa, Pan-Africanist uh, for Liberation and Solidarity Organizing. Philman uh, Zerai has also told the same media that the only issue is regional alignment and not complying enough uh, to a regional set of policies isolating Eritrea. the U.S. troop movement in the region instead of continuing the occupation of Somalia, Sudan, and so forth. According to Filmon, Abiy uh, is the best leader that Washington needs internally. But not with his engagement with Eritrea and with the conflict with the TPLF. He further cautioned that while it's important to highlight AbB's neoliberal leanings and disregard uh, for press nationalities in Ethiopia, the author's only issue seems to be his closeness uh, with Eritrea. By the uh, same token, uh, Elias has exposed that the TPLF begun the war by preparing for it raising nearly a quarter of a million special forces, militias, and irregular armed vigilantes, and continued its belligerent stance, beating the war drums during the time when Prime Minister uh, Abiy uh, had been extremely flexible and placating uh, towards uh, the TPLF, traveling several times to Tigray, uh, talking openly with the people, and pleading with the leaders of the TPLF to pursue the path of peace. Indeed, uh, Western media have concealed uh, the speech of TPLF's former mouthpiece, Secretary Gedishao, who admitted that the war was started by the TPLF. He was the first official to announce the 45-minute offensive carried out by the TPLF to neutralize the whole northern command of the Ethiopian National Defense Forces. And in other news uh, taking place uh, in neighboring Sudan, There is continuing unrest in the aftermath of the October 25th uh, military coup d'etat. The agreement uh, signed last month between interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak and uh, General abdel Fattah al-Burhan has been denounced uh, by the Forces for Freedom and Change. On Friday, the Forces for Freedom and Change uh, attempted to hold a public rally uh, the first one uh, since uh, the coup on october the 25th and uh, individuals within the crowd possibly connected uh, with the military junta and its supporters set off tear gas now today uh, sudanese protesters reached the presidential palace after fierce confrontations with the security forces in hartum the resistance committees on sunday organized protests across the country To commemorate the third anniversary of the december revolution in khartoum state the protests targeted the presidential palace to demand the handover of power to a civilian government after nearly two months of protests sunday's demonstration converged from abdurman khartoum north and khartoum to the same target for the first time previously the anti-coup protests were organized separately in the three cities of the capital Despite the closure of bridges linking the three cities and blockades of the main streets leading to the Republican Palace, thousands of protesters successfully crossed the Nile River as their massive number impressed the forces deployed at the bridges. Eyewitnesses told uh, the Sudan Tribune that military personnel cried as they watched the masses moving towards the bridge. The protesters crossed into Khartoum from Abdurman first, and then uh, from Khartoum North to Khartoum. The army is the army of Sudan. The army is not the army of Burhan, chanted the women and men who passed besides the immobilized soldiers. The processions poured towards the presidential palace, where the security forces in the adjacent streets sought to stop their progress. But after some 30 minutes, the soldiers withdrew from their positions, paving the way for the conquest of the bastion of the coup leaders. The anti-riot forces used uh, tear gas on the protesters, followed by gunshots, but the strong resilience of the protesters enabled them to reach the palace, which symbolizes the power of the military junta. Dozens of protesters were wounded during the confrontation between the protesters and the security forces. Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak uh, had directed the police commanders to not resort to the excessive use of violence against the protesters. Also, UNITAM's uh, head Volker Perthes called on the security forces to respect the right to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. Resistance committees in Madani and Port Sudan surrounded the headquarters other state governments calling for the power handover to a civilian government. On Sunday night, the resistance committees in Khartoum announced their decision to stage a sit-in outside the presidential palace until the handover of power to a civilian government. In response to this announcement of the open-ended sit-in, the security forces immediately assaulted the protesters outside the presidency using bullets and tear gas. Primary reports say over 100 protesters were injured, some of them sustained bullet wounds. The Central Committee of the Sudanese Doctors uh, still did not release a statement to confirm any deaths. <clears> Tomb <throat> North uh, committees issued a statement to denounce the excessive use of forces by the security forces and called on it to evacuate the palace. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And in other news uh, taking place on an international level, uh, there has, of course, uh, been continued discussion on the concept of vaccine inequality. The World Health Organization has slammed world leaders for contributing to the discrimination of African people uh, through uh, the COVID-19 inequalities. Earlier today, uh, the group's director of communications, Gabby Stern, addressed a webinar on the impact of the vaccine inequality and the travel bans on uh, the continent. Despite uh, having been identified in other countries, South Africa was the first to report the Omicron variant and faced harsh penalties as a result. Stern said that since those reports emerged, international media agencies have also been guilty of fueling the continental discrimination. Early on at the World Health Organization, uh, the director general, who is an African, was the target of the most grotesque, racist cartoons and attacks on social media. And this was uh, linked uh, to the stereotyping of Africa as somehow being beholden to China, Stern said. It has been convenient uh, for leaders of Western nations and the pharmaceutical industry for their own purposes to stereotype and caricature all things Africans from the start, said Stern. And finally, in uh, Congo, Brazzaville, the 78-year-old president, Denise Sasso Nguesu, was isolating uh, today after several of the long-serving, strong, long-serving leaders' entourage tested positive for coronavirus in accordance with health protocols. The head of state deemed to be a close contact is required to observe a period of isolation. That was according to a statement uh, issued uh, without uh, specifying the duration of the quarantine of uh, President Inguessu. Uh Sasu Inguessu, uh is a retired paratrooper. Uh, he has uh, led congo brazzaville uh over a period of uh, several uh, ten years, uh, going back some 37 years, uh, they said that uh, so far he has tested negative. He was represented there by Foreign Minister Jean Claude Gagasso and a Turkey-Africa at a Turkey-Africa summit in Istanbul uh, earlier um, during the week, previous week, and has postponed a visit to Congo's economic capital, capital of Point Noire uh in january congo Brazzaville recently lifted COVID curbs including restrictions on weddings the old rich central african the oil rich central african country has recorded at least 360 deaths caused uh, by uh, the covid 19 virus and with that that we're going to conclude uh, the pan-african newswire segment uh, of our program And in concluding uh, this segment, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. Welcome back and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, in the last program, uh, we talked about uh, the transition of uh, African American political prisoner uh, Russell Maroon Schultz. Uh, Schultz uh, was a veteran of the uh, Philadelphia Black Unity Council the Black Panther Party, and the Black Liberation Army. Uh, He had spent decades uh, in solitary confinement uh, in the prisons uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. And, uh, of course, uh, he, on several occasions, was able to escape uh, from uh, the clutches of uh, the criminal justice system in the United States. Unfortunately, uh, he was uh, recaptured and, uh, of course, died uh, just uh, two days ago uh, after being granted uh, medical parole, uh, he was suffering at that level, for stage four of colorectal cancer. And uh, today we want to focus on uh, an ongoing struggle with Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, who uh, just uh, commemorated the tragic and unjust uh, 40th anniversary of his uh, arrest and uh incarceration uh since uh december 9th of 1981 some 40 years and uh this is a um a news piece that we're going to hear entitled uh, manufacturing guilt which gives uh, some uh, background information on mumia abu jamal's case Uh, let's listen in
4: People really don't understand what
5: the climate was in Philadelphia in the years before Mumia was arrested. Because if they did, they would look at his arrest and his trial in a different fashion. In
6: 1982, Philadelphia journalist Mumia Abu-Jamal was convicted of first-degree murder in the killing of police officer Daniel Faulkner. On the July 4th weekend, he was sentenced to death in 2001, Federal Court Judge William Yan overturned Abu Jamal's death sentence as illegally imposed and unconstitutional. Yet Abu Jamal remained on death row for more than 10 years while the Philadelphia District Attorney continued to pursue his execution. In 2011, the DA's office conceded defeat, and after 30 years on death row, Abu Jamal was transferred from solitary confinement and joined the general prison population where he continues his appeals. Mumia Abu-Jamal has said numerous times, my only crime that night is that I survived. In fact, the effort to legally execute Abu-Jamal has only recently ended, but the first attempt to kill him may have been made on that fateful night of December 9, 1981. Abu-Jamal was also critically wounded, shot through the chest, and found near the prone body of Daniel Faulkner. And the evidence that convicted him for the murder, well, it doesn't exist. It's been well established over the years that Abu Jamal's trial was patently unjust. For instance, the Philadelphia D.A. trained prosecutors to exclude blacks from juries. In Abu Jamal's case, 11 out of the 15 preemptory strikes were made to bar blacks from his jury. What this short film will document is how countless due process violations began just moments after the shooting of Daniel Faulkner and Mumia Abu Jamal when members of the Philadelphia Police Department began to manufacture Abu-Jamal's guilt and, perhaps more importantly, conceal his innocence. In the culture wars that have punted Mumia the effigy, back and forth across ideological fields of politics, race, and class, the attempt has been made to diminish the relevance of Abu-Jamal as a journalist in 1981. But this man who was elected president of the Philadelphia chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists was already well-known throughout the city as a fiercely independent up-and-coming journalist. In fact, by the age of 15, the FBI was tracking the young writer for the Black Panther Party through their draconian and illegal program known as COINTELPRO. Not for violent behavior, but because of his, quote, inclination to appear and speak at public gatherings. Also in 1981, he was well known to the Philadelphia Police Department as an outspoken journalist who reported on police corruption and brutality, in particular with regard to the Philly PD's hostile relationship with the controversial MOVE organization, culminating in a year-long police siege of the MOVE house that ended in 1978 with the shooting death of police officer James Ramp. Nine members of MOVE were charged with the murder and during his coverage of the trial, Abu-Jamal strongly criticized the actions of the police and the prosecution, including the implication that the officer was most likely killed by police crossfire. The MOVE trial concluded just a year and a half before Abu-Jamal and Faulkner were found shot on that fateful night. And it was only four months from the federal trial of MOVE leader John Africa, whose acquittal on gun charges left the police and DA's office infuriated. When they saw
7: who they had, this was... Number one, I mean, wow, you know, look what we done ran into. We got a Panther, and we're going to kill this Panther. We're going to kill this nigga here, right here.
6: In the early morning hours of December 9th, 1981, police officer Daniel Faulkner pulls over a rundown blue Volkswagen Beetle in the bustling red light district of Philadelphia. At 3.51 a.m., Faulkner reports over his radio that he has stopped the car at 13th and Locust Street. At the same time, Mumia Abu-Jamal is parked in his cab just around the corner. He fills out his log, anticipating a new fare just as the clubs are closing. He's moonlighting as a cab driver after his uncompromising approach to reporting began to cost him work as a journalist. He had recently started carrying a registered 38 Charter Arms revolver during his late-night cab runs after having recently been robbed at gunpoint. From the DA's office to Abu-Jamal's most ardent defenders, all agree that Abu-Jamal's brother Billy Cook, who ran a street vendor stall nearby, exited his Volkswagen and had an exchange with Faulkner. But what happened next has been the subject of heated debate ever since. What is certain is that the version put forth by the prosecution in conjunction with the Philadelphia Police Department at Abu-Jamal's 1982 trial is a complete fabrication, and a willful fabrication at that. After being denied his constitutional right to defend himself at his original trial, and after heeding legal advice not to testify at his appeals hearing in 1995, Abu Jamal released a declaration in 2001 in which he details the events of that night.
7: I did not shoot police officer Daniel Faulkner. I had nothing to do with the killing of officer Faulkner. I am innocent. I was filling out my log when I heard some shouting. I glanced in my rearview mirror and saw a flashing dome light of a police cruiser. This wasn't unusual. I continued to fill out my trip sheet when I heard what sounded like gunshots. I looked again into my rearview mirror and saw people running up and down locusts. I recognized my brother standing in the street, staggering and dizzy. I immediately exited the cab and ran to his screen. As I came across the street, I saw a uniformed cop turn toward me, gun in hand. Saw a flash, and went down to my knees.
6: Now, the prosecution claimed that Abu Jamal's brother, Billy Cook, was alone in the Volkswagen. Officers James Forbes and Robert Shoemaker testified at the 82 trial that they were the first officers to arrive on the scene and that they immediately found Abu Jamal's gun as well as Faulkner's gun. Inspector Alfonso Giordano would arrive three minutes later and take control of the scene as the ranking officer. At pretrial hearings, Giordano testified that Abu-Jamal confessed to the murder when Giordano asked him where his gun was, and Abu-Jamal replied, I dropped it beside the car after I shot him. Cab driver Robert Chobert testified he was parked just behind Faulkner's squad car, witnessed the shooting, and identified Abu-Jamal as the shooter. Prostitute Cynthia White also testified that she saw the shooting. Her testimony matched that of Robert Chobert's. All of these claims, most of which formed the foundation of the prosecution's case, were manufactured. Let's first look at the claim that Billy Cook was alone in the Volkswagen. After Faulkner radioed that he stopped a car, he followed with, quote, on second thought, send me a wagon. This request for backup clearly indicates that there was more than one person in the car. Then in 1995, Captain Edward D'Amato admitted that a driver's license permit for a man named Arnold Howard, a business partner of Cook's, was found on Faulkner. Again, strong evidence that there was more than one person in Billy Cook's Volkswagen. In 1982, the police and prosecution illegally kept this evidence from Abu Jamal and his defense attorney. Why were they suppressing this evidence of other potential suspects in the shooting of Daniel Faulkner? Now, what about the immediate recovery of the weapons? Radio transmissions from the scene to Central Command over the next 15 minutes contradict the testimony of Officers Forbes and Shoemaker. No officer reports immediately finding any weapons. In fact, nearly five minutes later, officers on the scene report that Faulkner's gun is missing. It was 14 minutes before it was reported that the suspect's gun was recovered and that they had the doer in custody. There is no report that Abu Jamal confessed. There is no report that a witness or witnesses identified anyone as the shooter. Prior to the arrival of the Police Mobile Forensics Unit, freelance photographer Pedro Polakoff arrives, moving freely through the crime scene and snapping off more than two dozen photos. These photos show, contrary to police regulations, that the area was not properly secured to preserve evidence. The photographs also show Officer Forbes walking around carrying both guns in his bare hand. This lack of regard for forensic evidence looks more like willful intent to manipulate a crime scene when you consider the following. Police reported no fingerprints on the guns. No tests were done on Abu Jamal's hands for gunpowder residue. Contrary to police regulations, Officer Forbes failed to immediately turn over the weapons to the mobile crime unit. In fact, the weapons were not turned over for two hours. Later, the police falsely described the bullet from Faulkner's head wound as too damaged and deteriorated to do a comparison ballistics test with a bullet fired from Abu Jamal's gun. But photographs of the bullet clearly show the identifying characteristics, its twists, the number of lands and grooves, and the relative width. Instead, the prosecution claimed that the bullet was, quote, consistent with one fired from Abu Jamal's Charter Arms 38 revolver, although police ballistics expert Anthony Paul admitted this is true of, quote, multiple millions of guns. During appeals, when Abu Jamal and his legal team demanded independent testing to determine if the bullet was fired from Abu Jamal's gun, their request was denied, first by Judge Albert Sabo, and then later by Federal Court Judge William Yawn. What all of this clearly illustrates is that, in fact, there is no physical evidence that Abu Jamal shot Faulkner, or that his gun was the murder weapon. But what about eyewitness testimony? What about Cynthia White, the prostitute whose testimony was the linchpin to the prosecution's case? Several times after the shooting, she was arrested only to be let go after she signed updated witness statements. Each time, the story changed to make a stronger case against Dabu Jamal. By the time the case went to trial, her statement fit perfectly into the prosecution's case. Witnesses Pamela Jenkins and Yvette Williams swore that White said she was scared for her life under police threats, if she didn't testify as they wanted. Witness Veronica Jones blurted out on the witness stand at the 1982 trial that the police told her Cynthia White was given a deal to say that Abu Jamal was the shooter. Jones testified that the police threatened her to ID Abu Jamal as well. What's more, all the civilian witnesses, both for the prosecution and the defense, testified that they didn't see Cynthia White on the scene, or only later after the police arrived. And what about eyewitness Robert Chobert? His testimony was arranged most likely by Inspector Alfonso Giordano. The official police photos, as well as Polakov's photos, show Chobert's cab was not parked behind Faulkner's squad cars claimed by Chobert and the prosecution. In fact, Chobert was driving illegally that night on a suspended license while on probation after being paid to throw a firebomb into a grade school. During appeals, Chobert admitted that in exchange for his testimony, the prosecution said they would assist with his probation. What's more, Chobert later admitted that he was parked elsewhere, and that his testimony was false. The prosecution offered two more eyewitnesses, Michael Scanlon and Albert Magelton. Both men said that they did not see the shooting. Magelton only saw a man run across Locust Street. Scanlon explicitly described the man he saw as having an afro hairstyle and not dreadlocks. There are yet more troubling questions about what happened that night. Questions that continually underscore the innocence of Abu Jamal as well as the effort to frame him. Six witnesses, including Robert Chobert, made statements that one or more people fled the scene. There is no evidence that investigators ever pursued this person or persons. And, according to these witnesses, they were subjected to police threats, coercion, or offered favors by the prosecution. William Singletary, a local businessman, said he was standing on a nearby street corner and witnessed the shootings. Immediately after, he tried to give his statement to police that Abu Jamal arrived after Faulkner was already shot. Homicide detectives interrogated and threatened Singletary with bodily harm as well as the trashing of his business if he testified in favor of Abu Jamal. And then Abu Jamal's brother, Billy Cook, later swore that his business partner, Ken Freeman, was in the car with him and participated in the shooting of Faulkner. Cook said police threatened him with his life and that he too would be charged with Faulkner's murder if he testified for his brother at trial. Also factor in that eight people, including two officers and two prosecution witnesses, identified the shooter or persons near Faulkner as wearing a green army jacket but Billy Cook was wearing a blue Nehru-style jacket, and Abu-Jamal was wearing a blue-quilted ski jacket with wide red zigzag stripes. In 1999, a career criminal and self-described hitman Arnold Beverly confessed he shot Faulkner in the head and that Abu-Jamal arrived after Faulkner was shot and had nothing to do with the shooting. Without providing any reason, except that the confession was too late, Pennsylvania and federal courts have refused to even admit this confession into evidence. Now, while the prosecution supposedly had four witnesses to the shooting, none of their witnesses ever said they saw Abu Jamal get shot. The prosecution argued that as Abu Jamal came across Locust Street, he shot Faulkner in the back and as Faulkner turned and was falling down, he pulled his gun and shot Abu Jamal. An upward shot through his chest, while the prosecution tried to explain the clear downward trajectory of the bullet as the ricochet off his ribcage, medical evidence is clear. The bullet moved cleanly into Abu Jamal's chest, through his lung, and lodged near his liver in an uninterrupted downward line. The prosecution's rendition of how Abu Jamal was shot is physically impossible. But perhaps the most striking fabrication of the case presented to jurors in 1982 A falsehood that formed the emotional foundation of the prosecution's case and its success in securing a death sentence is the testimony of Cynthia White and Robert Chobert that Abu Jamal shot Faulkner, execution style, standing directly over him and unloading four rounds, somehow three miss and only one strikes Faulkner in the face. Now, what this claim actually shows is the clear intent by members of the Philadelphia Police Department and the District Attorney's Office to frame Umiya Abu-Jamal for a crime he did not commit. Bullets from a 38 caliber weapon hitting the sidewalk would, without any doubt, leave divots as they tore into the concrete. As shown by this photo analyzed by Robert Nelson, an expert in photo enhancement and analysis at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the concrete was, as Nelson determined, quote, completely smooth. This photograph proves that White and Chobert could not have seen, as they claimed at trial, anyone stand over Faulkner and fire. This clearly supports, along with the other evidence of police intimidation, that their testimony was arranged to support a patently false, physically impossible rendition of the crime. This execution style account invented by the police and prosecution was a key part of their concerted effort not only to get a guilty verdict, but the death penalty. Mumia Abu-Jamal's arrest for this murder was shocking to all who knew him or knew his work. The headline of the Philadelphia Inquirer the next day was unusually sympathetic, stating, the suspect, Jamal, an eloquent activist not afraid to raise his voice. Philadelphia Inquirer, December 10, 1981. Arrested and charged with murdering a police officer, Abu Jamal, from the very outset, acted on his innocence, twice requesting a police lineup, a direct challenge to prosecution witnesses to identify him. He knew the real shooter, or shooters, most have fled the scene. But the court denied his requests for a lineup, just as they would deny his request for funds that would pay for defense investigations, as well as expert ballistics witnesses. What's been presented here is evidence of a concentrated effort to frame a man who had been the object of hatred among members of the Philadelphia Police Department for more than a decade. Though it was denied by police, the admitting doctor at Jefferson Hospital, where both Abu Jamal and Faulkner were admitted, noted injuries indicating that Abu Jamal took a serious beating in addition to his critical gunshot wound. Supported by civilian witness statements, Abu-Jamal himself recounts being punched, kicked, and rammed headfirst into a pole by officers arriving on the scene. After being thrown into a police van, Inspector Alfonso Giordano assaults Abu-Jamal in the head with a police radio while hurling racial slurs. A former commander of the Philadelphia Police Department's stakeout Cops, Giordano was in charge of the raids on the offices of the Philadelphia chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s when Abu Jamal was a prominent member. Giordano was also in charge of the year-long police siege of MOVE in 1978, which typified racial tensions in the city at the time and resulted in the subsequent trial of the MOVE-9, when Giordano arrived on the crime scene to find the wounded journalist Abu Jamal. He knew exactly who he was and from that moment on, all police attention was directed to producing evidence of Abu Jamal's guilt and nothing else. As the prosecution built their case, Giordano was the prime police witness during pre-trial hearings and his account of Abu Jamal's confession was a cornerstone. But without explanation, he was pulled from the case and did not even testify at trial. Unknown to Abu Jamal and his defense, Giordano, as well as the commander and deputy commander of the Center City area, along with the head of the Homicide Division, in fact the entire chain of command in Abu Jamal's prosecution, were all under FBI investigation for corruption at the time of Faulkner's murder. Giordano was removed from his post as a command inspector and relegated to desk duty after the FBI and the Justice Department apparently informed Philadelphia District Attorney Ed Randell that Giordano was under investigation for corruption and his testimony at Abu Jamal's trial would undermine their case. Giordano resigned from the police force at full retirement pay, the first working day after Abu Jamal's conviction. His previously publicized report that Abu Jamal confessed to shooting Faulkner was not even introduced at trial. But the prosecution would still get their confession. The DA's office convened a roundtable meeting and asked police witnesses Did anybody hear his statement? Officers Gary Bell and Gary Wachschel, along with Jefferson Hospital Security Guard Priscilla Durham, suddenly report a second confession by Abu Jamal. At this point, this dramatic second confession is being remembered and reported more than two months after the night of the crime. Officer Wachschel, assigned to Abu Jamal from the crime scene through his admittance to the hospital, along with Officer Bell and Security Guard Durham, reportedly heard Abu Jamal say, "'I shot the motherfucker, and I hope he dies.'" But less than two hours after supposedly hearing this confession, Waxhul completed his report to homicide detectives with the statement that during his entire time guarding Abu Jamal, quote, "'The Negro male made no comments.'" When Waxhul was questioned during appeals why it took more than two months to report this supposed confession, He explained that he was too distressed to remember, and then later claimed, quote, I only then realized it might have some meaning. Security guard Priscilla Durham, who had aspirations to become a police officer herself, later admitted to her stepbrother that she lied about hearing this confession. And what about Dr. Anthony Coletta, who was with Abu Jamal from the time he arrived in the emergency room until he went into surgery and stated that he did not hear nor hear of any confession made by Abu Jamal in the hospital. When Abu Jamal attempted to call Walkshow to the stand during the 82 trial to counter the report of his confession, he was told by the prosecution that the officer was on vacation and was denied even a phone call by Judge Sabo to see if the officer could be reached. When Abu Jamal protested this blatantly unreasonable and unjust denial, Sabo's response was, Your attorney and you goofed. A comment of such cruelty is no surprise given the obvious bias and racism of Judge Sabo, who promised to a fellow judge in the presence of court reporter Terry Marrer carter that, quote, I'm going to help them fry the nigger. But while Sabo was infamous for his hostile behavior with defendants and was actually nicknamed the Prosecutor in Robes, it was a corrupt Philadelphia police force, empowered by the D.A., that clearly manufactured Abu Jamal's guilt and suppressed evidence of his innocence beginning in those early morning hours of December 9, 1981. In 1998, from the bowels of death row, Mumia Abu-Jamal made this statement, a statement that reaches back into Philadelphia's unquestionably racist history and shines a bright light into the darkness. Even after their legal ledger domain, I remain innocent.
7: A court cannot make an innocent man guilty. Any ruling founded on injustice is not justice. The righteous fight for life Liberty and for justice can only continue.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a documentary entitled "Manufacturing Guilt," um, dealing uh, with the legacy of the injustice uh, committed against uh, African American journalists, Mumia Abu Jamal. Um, in 1981, who still remains in prison in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, having spent numerous years on death row, but uh, at the same time, after having been taken off death row, was given a sentence of life without a chance of parole. Nonetheless, uh, much exculpatory evidence exists uh, to exonerate Mamiya Habujamal. After 40 years, uh, nonetheless, um, the authorities... Uh, maintain uh, him imprisoned uh, in uh, the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, was a widely known and respected journalist uh, in Philadelphia. We're going to play a um, interview that uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal conducted with Bob Marley, the uh, reggae Pan-Africanist artist and philosopher. Uh, this uh, is from 1979.
4: Here is a piece Mumia Abu-Jamal produced with his interview of Bob Marley.
5: the isle called jamaica comes the rastaman reggae missionary bob marley one of a growing number of rastafarians believers in the divinity of ethiopian emperor haile selassie came to philadelphia recently to talk about his music his dreams and rastafari a mystic religious community born in jamaica back in 1930 No reggae artist in the world has attracted the loving accolades of the dreadlocked Marley. Marley is truly a missionary, and his message, one of global black redemption, is contained within the music of Rastafari.
8: What is the Exodus? Exodus somebody, huh? We have a Babylon and then the physical exodus to you
2: war. Know? So
8: what we really have say is that we want the black people to unite with one another and deal with it. No, the only way we can unite is to unite about the truth. Yeah. The truth is that King Solomon and King David is a root. And if we are we are dealing with roots, we have to deal with it from King Solomon and King David time. Line of the tribe of Judah, you know. So, this why I I say, time for unity. You know, because we are people, we have something, and we have to deal with it. That's why I suggest on that.
5: spiritual descendants of the Jamaican freedom fighters, Marines who fled the plantations and set up rebel societies in the highlands, shunned the technological advances of the West. The West, they say, is Babylon, a land of unmitigated evil, greed, and other unsavory characteristics. They're a tribe of vegetarians, eating the fruit and herbs of the earth, not the meat of animal life. They see themselves as natural mystics, with a message for black people the world over. The music is hard, gutsy, bassy, and sprinkled liberally with a message. The unity of the globe's black peoples around the Rastafari. Rastafari was the name of Haile Selassie before he was coronated emperor of Ethiopia.
8: When I come here, I want, I really desire for really get true to the people. I don't want to come here for joke. Yeah. When I come here, when I leave, I want the people, dreadlock, uh, see them dreadlock, I will to them Rastafari and get the thing rebellious. We can't leave, you know, because we can't continue going on the same thing over and over and over and over again.
2: We're moving right out of Babylon and we're grooving
8: simple but it's true. Rasta for the people. Rasta for our eyes for the people. capitalism and communism are finished. The Rasta now, the black man, we have life. That's what we are saying O no, We are saying, give the black man, see him we have life now. Make him show you how government run and you how people care for people. Who think of the love? Who sing the tune them in the church? Black people are sing them you know. Who is the Ooh, a spiritual people upon earth? The black people. They might deal with God. And God not let them down. God did it. And God set them to unite. Because when you unite, that is the power of God.
2: That you care.
5: message just is moving
2: We're the yes, the black a some people, got everything. Some people got nothing
5: survival lurks at the heart of the rasta message survival with little or no money survival with a supportive community which only means survival with the spirit of love.
2: We're a
8: survivor. You know, it's a survival of our black people in Rasta, which are going to make the other people survive too. Because if a black man will survive, no one can survive. Learn that, and yet we don't make no weapon. But it's just that, if we can't survive, nobody else will. <laughs> to Rasta. So when I come to America, I say,
2: he the a madrid man. He made my eyes feel strong. Yes. You stand up for your eyes. Get up, stand up. Stand up, stand Stand up for your eyes. Get up, stand up. Get up, stand
5: up. A bit of history now. During the 1920s, Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa philosophy affected much of the thinking of the African diaspora of the Western Hemisphere. Nowhere was he more influential than in Jamaica, his island homeland. In one of his speeches, Garvey already revered as a prophet in Jamaica said, Look to Africa when a black king shall be crowned, for the day of deliverance is near. 1930 witnessed the splendorous coronation of Rastafari, an Ethiopian baron, as the Emperor Haile Selassie, king of kings, lord of lords, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, Selassie was a direct descendant of David in a line of Ethiopian kings stretching in unbroken succession from the time of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This event sent many religious Jamaicans to their Bibles where they found support for this in Revelations, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and many other books. Before long, religious leaders on the island were saying that Garvey's prophecy has been fulfilled and preached to the people to consider Haile Selassie the living God and call themselves Rastafari's in his honor. You've heard the story of one Rastaman, Bob Marley, whose message, in essence, is a message of Rasta. That's survival. <speaking in Spanish> Bob Marley in Philadelphia.
2: Where the survivors.
5: This is Munia Abu-Jamal reporting for Uhuru Sound. Hail Ja, the <speaking in Spanish>
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a classic uh, piece uh, put together by Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, back uh, in uh, 1979. Focus on uh, Bob Marley, who uh, visited and uh, performed in Philadelphia uh, during uh, that fateful year. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast and uh, I am your host. Uh, we'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. Mm-hmm. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the uh, Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, December the 19th, uh, 2021. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. would like to thank all of our listeners uh, for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan African Journal. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan African Journal. Right now, we want to listen to Africa Live from CGTN, a uh, program for today, uh, discussing some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, let's listen in. Music
5: GTN, China Global Television Network.
0: This is the world. Today, 15 minutes of the latest news from around the world. I am Penina Karibe coming up to in this in this hour. Hong Kong voters are electing lawmakers for the first time since a major reform. The death toll from Typhoon Rai climbs as it moves out of the Philippines. And Europe is quickly moving to tighten restrictions as Omicron spreads. A legislative council election is underway in Hong Kong. It's the first such election after the improvement of the electoral system in the special administrative region under the principle of patriots administering Hong Kong. Polling stations opened at 8.30 this morning, Yang Chengxi reports.
9: We've already seen lines forming in front of the polling station, of voters coming in to vote. Now, uh, the, the voting will, is expected to be wrapped up at 10.30 p.m. this evening. Voters will come out to over 600 polling stations across the city to cast their vote and the voting for the election committee constituencies will take place at the Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Center in Wan Chai. Now, the city's uh, anti-corruption agency, the ICAC, has dispatched over uh, 800 officers across polling stations to make sure that this is a clean election. Now, the government has provided free public transportation from subway to tram cars to buses uh, for vote uh, to encourage more voters to come out and vote on Sunday. Now, the voting for the geographical constituencies will be done by digital voting this time. So according to election officials, the results are expected to be out earlier than previous editions of uh, elections. Now, uh, according to election officials, the results for these geographical constituencies will be out on Monday morning, early Monday morning. Now, the results for the election committee constituencies Uh, should be out about three to four hours after polling closes at 10.30 p.m. And the the votes for the functional constituencies might take the longest to count, and it should be out by noon on Monday.
0: Authorities have set up three polling stations at Hong Kong's border with Shenzhen in Guangdong province. A special closed-loop system allows mainland-based Hong Kong people to vote despite COVID travel restrictions. It is our civic duty
4: to vote for who will be the public servants in Hong Kong. First of all, they must love China. If Hong Kong's legislators do not stand on China's position but oppose the country, they can't work in the Legislative Council and receive a salary from the Hong Kong government. For a long time, I've viewed such behavior with contempt.
10: I think the most important thing is stability and prosperity. We know that bad things happened in 2018 and 2019. The social unrest and the COVID-19 pandemic is still going on in Hong Kong. I think we still need all social forces for prosperity and stability. However, the most basic principle is that only those who love Hong Kong and love their country should govern the region. For me, I need to express my will by casting a vote.
0: Former chief executive of Hong Kong, Leung Chung-ying, has praised the region's improved electoral system. He said it cuts off those who want to harm Hong Kong.
5: We can remember that some legislators from the Legislative Council elected under the past electoral system often carried banners and rushed towards the rostrum. They had refused to fulfil the responsibilities as legislators of the Legislative Council of Hong Kong. They overstepped the government's power and even acted against Hong Kong and the nation and who were willingly utilized by some Western countries. Now we have the first election for the Legislative Council since the improvement to the electoral system. The significance of a standing out to vote is not only electing those with virtue and capabilities but it's also saying no to the past electoral system for the Legislative Council that halted and wasted the time of Hong Kong and some legislators elected under the system.
0: Out of the 90 seats in Hong Kong, Lepco 20 are directly elected. 40 seats are decided by the Electoral Affairs Commission and 30 others are from the professional subsectors. SAR Chief Executive Carrie Lam said this composition would introduce various voices to the region's
4: legislature.
0: What we've seen in the
4: campaigns is that the 153 candidates are from a wide range of backgrounds in terms of their ages, professions, fields, and political positions. This is consistent with the demand of our electoral system, that not all lawmakers share a same value and same stance. So it seems that there will be many different voices in the Legislative Council. It doesn't matter, our administration is willing to listen to different opinions because our goal is to do a good job in municipal affairs and perform real deeds for the people of Hong Kong.
0: At least 75 people have been killed in the strongest typhoon to hit the Philippines this year. The number has jumped from the previously reported 31. Typhoon Rai smashed into the southern and central parts of the country Thursday. It forced over 300,000 people from their homes and beachfront resorts. The death toll is expected to rise. The island province of Bohol is among the hardest hit, and its governor said they have only reached out to fewer than half of the mayors. Cleanup and reconstruction are underway. Britain has reported a surge in Omicron cases, as London's mayor declares a major incident to help the city's hospitals cope. The number of Omicron cases recorded across the country hit almost 25,000 on Friday. That's more than 10,000 cases from a day earlier. As officials warn, this could be just the tip of the iceberg. Britain has been added to Germany's list of high-risk countries with tighter travel restrictions. France has cancelled the traditional New Year fireworks in Paris amid growing concerns over Omicron. Nearly 60,000 new cases were reported on Saturday. The country's health minister says Omicron accounts for up to 10% of new confirmed cases and the Netherlands will go into lockdown over the Christmas period to try and stop an Omicron surge. Michael Vos reports from London.
11: The first all-night vaccination centres have opened in England. With a record 93,000 new daily cases, the rush is on to contain the highly contagious new Omicron variant. Almost half the population though have now had their third jab. Hospitals are reporting a rise in the number of patients in intensive care, some of who have been double vaccinated. I don't think
12: it's going to happen. I've been double jabs as well. May
11: and July, I was jabbed. Um, and I did say if I hadn't been vaccinated I probably wouldn't be here. Doctors at this hospital fear it's going to get much worse.
12: So all of the meetings that we've attended in so far as the network is concerned where modelling is taking place, uh, the message is clear that this looks like it's the calm before the storm.
11: There are reports the UK government is considering a short two-week circuit breaker lockdown, though this could face stiff opposition from many in the ruling Conservative Party. There were long queues at the Eurostar railway station in London on Friday night as passengers tried to take the train to France before it closed its borders to people traveling from Britain. France is also seeing a surge in COVID cases, leaving its hospitals under pressure. The Mulhouse Hospital ICU is currently at full capacity as patients have been coming in for the last 20 days. 70% of the ICU patients are COVID-positive cases. France has reopened large venues such as this velodrome for mass vaccinations and is now offering them to five-year-olds. Germany has also started vaccinating everyone over the age of five. The fear is that the situation is going to get much worse.
13: I too expect a massive fifth wave. I'm in close contact with my colleagues in England, both politically and scientifically. They say that what we are seeing there exceeds everything we have seen during the entire pandemic so far. Back in Britain,
11: the economy is starting to suffer with mounting pressure on the government to renew financial assistance to hospitality and other sectors.
0: In Spain, hundreds of demonstrators have gathered in Barcelona and Bilbao to protest against COVID-19 health passes that are now required to enter bars, restaurants and gyms. With a nationwide vaccination rate of nearly 80%, Spain had been largely spared the latest wave sweeping Europe, a wave which has pushed countries like Germany to reintroduce tough restrictions on travel and socializing. Spain's infection rate has more than doubled since the beginning of the month. The country has recorded more than 5.4 million cases and over 88,000 deaths since the pandemic began. The Chinese mainland has reported 44 new locally transmitted COVID cases, 31 were in the eastern province of Chenjiang, mostly in the city of Shaoxing, 10 were reported in Shanxi and 3 in the southern province of Guangdong, 39 imported cases were also reported. Aid agencies are calling for more support from international donors to try and mitigate the devastation brought about by flooding in parts of South Sudan. In areas around Bentiu town in the north of the country, authorities say relentless flooding has left more than 90% of the population of the entire state homeless and their livelihoods washed away. CGTN's Patrick Oyet reports from Bentiu. More
14: people keep arriving in Bentiu town from villages overrun by floods, their homes have been washed away crops are underwater and food is scarce here livestock have died in the flood the few domestic animals that have survived are dying because of lack of what to eat aid agencies say they are overwhelmed and are asking for more support from international donors The entire population of Unity State in the northern part of South Sudan now depends on food aid. Women, the elderly, and children are the most affected.
0: We are
4: suffering. We have nothing now.
0: We used to have farms in this place. We used to have enough food. But we are now surrounded by water. We only have little goods coming here by canoes.
14: Schools are also flooded. Children are now studying under a few trees that have not yet been submerged by water.
15: I hope that uh, children have to continue with their studies regardless of the situation that they are in. Even though if they are in the middle of this crisis, children have to go to school. They have to have access to, to continue with their learning. Uh, whether they are in the in middle of the water or the crisis, they have to continue with their study.
14: The UN says more than 2 million people may not have access to basic health services. 200,000 women and children already acutely malnourished will be at further risk. Patrick Oyet, CGTN, Bentu, South Sudan.
0: And that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with Moonies from Around the Continent and Africa Live. Thanks for watching.
5: this is it, I'm just about to be shot. There are here, bottles
11: are being thrown, as they do so. Uh, we there are about have three critical l- bridges l- 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 here in
12: Malawi. That's one of them, we're going to cross that bridge.
4: As you can see behind me, police forces...
9: ...who are replying with gas, in. gas just came So it's all begun now.
5: Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here just be careful here with some
0: this is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. Is the front line now after nine days of fighting? We're about
11: two to three kilometers from Within the front line view of this frontline position.
5: China Global Television Network.
0: Uganda sets tougher rules for travelers as COVID cases rise. UK reports surge in Omicron cases has held officials warn of bigger waves. And Ethiopia rejects u.n probe of possible war crimes in the north of the country. This is Africa Live. and more welcome to the show. I am Penina Caribbean also coming up. Relatives of Ethiopian Airlines 737 MAX crash victims want Boeing executives prosecuted. And the African champions Algeria beat Tunisia 2-0 in the FIFA Arab Cup final in Qatar to claim top honours. Ugandan authorities have announced that mandatory testing will be conducted via land border points. The targeted borders are those with Kenya, South Sudan, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. Officials say the decision is stemming from the need to check a rise in infections caused by variants of Omicron imported from neighboring countries. The cases were detected among travelers who arrived through the Interbe International Airport. Previously, arrivals where land borders were only required to show a valid negative PCR certificate from an accredited lab. So far, 25 cases of the Omicron variant have been reported in Uganda. Menhal, Kenya, says its COVID-19 positivity rate is at 23% amid ongoing community transmission of the Omicron strain. Kenyans have been urged to get vaccinated and continue to observe prevention guidelines. Many Congolese citizens are looking forward to celebrating Christmas with family and friends this year following the government's easing of coronavirus restrictions. Last year, the government banned large gatherings and ordered the closure of bars and nightclubs to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But a drop in infections has led to the easing of restrictions. Sajitian's Christopher Chamringa sent this report from Kinshasa. It's
12: that time of the year that the DRC capital, Kinshasa, sparkles and shines. The festive season is a big deal here. Music and dancing is an integral part of how Congolese celebrate the season. Last year, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic prompted the government to impose tough restrictions, which prevented many people from celebrating Christmas in their traditional way. But this year, it's different. There won't be a lockdown, just a curfew and the compulsory wearing of masks
0: in 2020 it was difficult for us to celebrate christmas because the government imposed a lockdown but this year the restrictions have been eased we will wear our masks when we are out celebrating everyone should know that covid 19 exists
12: The government has urged the public to maintain social distancing and respect the curfew it imposed to curb the spread of COVID-19. That comes on the heels of a recent announcement by the health ministry about the circulation of the Omicron variant across the country. For many Congolese, the news of the fast-spreading variant will not deter them from going out to spread the Christmas cheer.
0: So whether it's Omicron or
16: whether it's something else, now I'm talking like quinoa, we're all going to die for something. So we're going to celebrate with or without precautions.
12: (laughs) The DRC has recorded more than 67,000 COVID-19 cases and over 1,100 deaths since last year. The pandemic has spread to all the 26 provinces across the country. A lot of misinformation about the pandemic has led to widespread skepticism about COVID vaccines. But what's without doubt is that thousands of Congolese citizens are preparing to put on their dancing shoes and celebrate this year's festive season. Christopher Chamringa, CGTN, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo.
0: When the United Kingdom put Southern African countries onto a troubled red list due to the scientific identification of Omicron, the impact was immediate and devastating to the tourism sector. All the 11 countries were removed from the list this week. As Angela Coppola reports, the South African nations hit hard by this troubled ban are not just counting losses but also considering what to do about the economic damage.
17: According to the Tourism Business Council, the tourism sector lost $62.5 million in bookings alone in the first 48 hours following the ban. It doesn't end there.
16: The challenge that we sit with now is that uh, we still have the EU, uh, you know, still ban South Africa. You know, the likes of Germany are important, France is important uh, for tourism, Uh, the Netherlands. Uh, and many other countries within the European Union. If you look at the European Union itself, 6,000 tourists come from the European Union. Uh, we still have the U.S. that still have vendors. Luckily, we just got the news that Canada has lifted the on South Africa.
17: The hospitality sector was hard hit by that red listing.
13: So if we take our December period, we lost about 45% of our business. Um, some of it has clawed back in, in fits and starts. Um, and we about 65% of our January and February businesses. That's the short-term losses that were ring-fenced in terms of the international travel.
17: There's been some discussion about seeking compensation from the UK authorities for imposing that latest read listing. So one of the things about our continent, about Africa, is how willing and how, how forgiving we are. We really shouldn't be. We should be as bold as to say we will sue them for lost compensation. We will try and get them to uh, to recompense us for compensate us uh, for the damage that is done. Because it did not just do a financial damage, but it also had a reputational damage. Industry players don't see any value in pursuing that option. The
16: issue of compensation takes years. And uh, we can't wait for years to operate and uh, go into court and so forth and so on. For us, it's... Let's restore trust. Let's make sure that we work together. Let's put the red listing issues aside uh, into the history books.
13: I think there should be some consequences, but I think you've got five chances of getting it. it settlement. I think of that. This is a worldwide problem that we've got to deal with. And and um, I think let's rather let's uh, we're not going to get it. That doesn't make sense. Let's rather just try and rebuild and learn from the mistakes of of doing knee-jerk reactions.
17: It's not about whether the tourists are back in the country or not, it's about the long-term damage that's been done to those tourism establishments and when they're going to recover and contribute meaningfully to the South African GDP. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa.
0: The Omicron travel bans also impacted Nigeria's aviation industry, which was already struggling. The Nigerian government has threatened reciprocal actions. Zijitian Bademosi has more on that story.
15: Nigeria's aviation industry was already facing a very difficult struggle, recovering from the prolonged stoppage of aviation activities following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic last year, when the flight restriction over the Omicron variant was suddenly imposed on the country industry players say they didn't see the flight ban coming and that it has now compounded their situation. We
18: never expected that because if you look at the global indices, um, how this COVID-19 is being tackled. Nigeria has done so wonderfully well. As a travel agent, uh, we have so sticker to those destinations because people are already willing to travel they have been indoors. they have been in nigeria for so long and uh, 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 recently we started seeing change we started seeing people coming to us to purchase the article a lot of people even
15: though the united kingdom has now rescinded its flight ban that of canada and saudi arabia are still in place canada is a popular destination for nigerians seeking to study abroad while Saudi Arabia is popular for Nigerian Muslim pilgrims. With the flight ban of both countries still in place, the number of travelers from Nigeria has significantly
18: gone down. We have students that are supposed to resume uh, this coming January, about how many, how many days to go. And with the travel ban from the other three countries, they, 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 they couldn't go. And apart from that, a lot of people wish to to celebrate the Christmas outside in some of this country. They have made preparation, they have booked their hotel, they have made payment, they have bought their ticket, but now with, the, with Nigeria on the red list, it means they cannot go to these places. And that seriously had a negative effect on our businesses because some of us couldn't. Pay our uh, office rent. Some of us, we have issues with our clients when it comes to refunds of tickets.
15: The Nigerian government says it is hoping to resolve the issue diplomatically. But it has also warned that it could be compelled to take a reciprocal action by banning flights from the countries involved. Some experts though warn that may not be
17: the right move. My personal calculation is that uh, we will lose a lot because most of the earnings we get in aviation is from the foreign airline. Except they want to tell us they are not making money. And that's why I said that uh, fraud, for the past 20 years now we have to find out how much money we are making out of the commercial agreement. By my calculation, we shouldn't be; it cannot be less than $40 million in a year. The government
15: is still pursuing the diplomatic option to resolve the standoff. It has not said how far talks have gone, and if there's any resolution inside that for as long as the travel ban remains, the aviation industry will continue to bear the brunt. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos, Nigeria.
0: Britain has reported a surge in Omicron cases as London's mayor declares a major incident to help the city's hospitals cope. The number of Omicron cases recorded across the country hit almost 25,000 on Friday. That's more than 10,000 cases from a day earlier. Health officials warn this could be just the tip of the iceberg. Britain has been added to Germany's list of high-risk countries with tighter travel restrictions. France has cancelled the traditional New Year fireworks in Paris amid growing concerns over Omicron. Nearly 60,000 new cases were reported on Saturday. The country's health minister says Omicron accounts for up to 10 percent of new confirmed cases and the Netherlands will go into lockdown over the Christmas period to try and stop an Omicron surge. Michael Bors reports from London.
11: The first all-night vaccination centres have opened in England. With a record 93,000 new daily cases, the rush is on to contain the highly contagious new Omicron variant. Almost half the population, though, have now had their third jab. Hospitals are reporting a rise in the number of patients in intensive care, some of who have been double vaccinated.
12: I don't think it's going to happen. I've been double-jabbed as well. May and July, I was jabbed. Um,
11: If I hadn't been vaccinated, I probably wouldn't be here. Doctors at this hospital fear it's going to get much worse. So all of the meetings that we've attended insofar
12: as the network is concerned where modelling is taking place, uh, the message is clear that this looks like it's the calm before the storm.
11: There are reports the UK government is considering a short two-week circuit breaker lockdown, though this could face stiff opposition from many in the ruling Conservative Party. There were long queues at the Eurostar railway station in London on Friday night as passengers tried to take the train to France before it closed its borders to people travelling from Britain. France is also seeing a surge in Covid cases, leaving its hospitals under pressure. The Mulhouse Hospital ICU is currently at full capacity as patients have been coming in for the last 20 days. 70% of the ICU patients are COVID-positive cases. France has reopened large venues such as this velodrome for mass vaccinations and is now offering them to five-year-olds. Germany has also started vaccinating everyone over the age of five. The fear is that the situation is going to get much worse.
17: I
13: too expect a massive fifth wave. I'm in close contact with my colleagues in England, both politically and scientifically. They say that what we are seeing there exceeds everything we have seen during the entire pandemic so far.
11: Back in Britain, the economy is starting to suffer with mounting pressure on the government to renew financial assistance to hospitality and other sectors.
0: You're watching Africa Live. Let's take a short break. Coming up... Pedan braces when he protests three years after revolution. <laughs> Protests are expected across Sudan today to mark the third anniversary of mass demonstrations that ended President Omar al-Bashir's rule. Opposition activists said they were mobilizing thousands of supporters to demonstrate against General Abdel Fattah al-Burran, meanwhile the country's Sovereignty Council has suspended part of a 2020 peace deal with rebel groups in the east. Move the move follows tribal protests against the deal known as the East Track Agreement, groups like the Beja Central Council are demanding that the government revises the text of the deal, claiming that they are sidelined. In protest, they have closed the main port in the city of Port Sudan in the east of the country.
18: The fact that our people in Eastern Sudan now agree on this decision to suspend the track, and also it is important that they talk about Khalad, a local custom in the customs and traditions of the tribes of Eastern Sudan
2: and judges use
18: it to adjudicate in various disputes and the solutions that led to the formation of a committee. This will contribute to resolving major issues. Everyone should be fully aware that this East Track argument came with long struggles and has many gains in favor of Eastern Sudan. And we will not make a compromise by cancelling the track but it is possible to review the items that stand in the way between us and our brothers who reject the track and must be modified.
14: There is no other solution except a dialogue. We have all experienced it in Sudan and in many cases that the gun or closure is the solution. But it has been proven before that it is not the solution.
0: Aid agencies are calling for more support from international donors to try and mitigate the devastation brought about by flooding in parts of South Sudan. In areas around Bentu town in the north of the country, authorities say relentless flooding has left more than 90% of the population of the entire state homeless and their livelihoods washed away. CGTN's Patrick Oyet reports from Bentu.
14: More people keep arriving in Bentu town from villages overrun by floods, their homes have been washed away crops are underwater and food is cut here livestock have died in the flood the few domestic animals that have survived are dying because of lack of what to eat aid agencies say they are overwhelmed and are asking for more support from international donors the entire population of unity state in the northern part of south sudan now depends on food aid women the elderly and children are the most
0: affected we are suffering we have nothing now we used to have farms in this place we used to have enough food but we are now surrounded by water we only have little goods coming here by canoes
14: schools are also flooded Children are now studying under a few trees that have not yet been submerged by water.
12: I hope that
15: uh, children have to continue with their study regardless of the situation that they are in. Even though if they are in the middle of this crisis, children have to go to school. They have to have access to, to continue with their learning. Uh, whether they are in the in middle of the water or the crisis, they have to continue with their study.
14: The UN says more than 2 million people may not have access to basic health services. 200,000 women and children already acutely malnourished will be at further risk. Patrick Coyette, CGTN, Bentu, South Sudan.
0: The Ethiopian Ministry of Communication has responded to the UN's decision to probe allegations of war crimes in the country. It says it will not cooperate with the designated team. CGTN's Grim Chala has more on the Ethiopian government's reaction and the current situation at the front lines in the north of the country.
19: The Ethiopian government has a few hours ago released a strong statement against the decisions made by the U.N. Human Rights uh, Council. Uh, It reads, uh, just the point, this action by some in the council is an attempt uh, to uh, find a way, an alternative way of meddling in the internal affairs of uh, the country and will not serve any purpose except exacerbating the situation on the ground. It reads, Richard, Ethiopia from the onset was rejecting this meeting, calling it, unnecessary because it was working it's, uh, its own Human Rights Commission, which was very credible by the way, was jointly working with the UN and had uh, published a report uh, which was accepted by many member states uh, before and that was expected to be implemented. However now the decision was made as you remember so many uh, African states uh, uh, were not even happy of the organization of this meeting itself and no African state voted for that and this statement continues saying that Ethiopia will not cooperate with the team that was formed as it was imposed on it. Its human rights situation is an internal affair. The international community is expected to work with us. Ethiopia is unhappy and it will not cooperate according to
0: the statement. We generally take it that the UN Human Rights Council is attempting to meddle in the internal affairs of the sovereign state. This meeting was used by nations that want to use this opportunity to attack Ethiopia. Let us be clear, Ethiopia will not accept the outcomes of this meeting. We are in fact disappointed by the decisions made because it has abandoned the positive efforts exerted by this government. And we should be honest, this decision will shadow any other future engagement we shall have with the UN body. The other main thing is that we have noticed which nations are our true friends and which others are our foes, and would like to take advantage of our challenges.
19: Unfortunately, war continues in the north uh, between the Ethiopian National Defense uh, Force, other armed, armed armed force under the Prime Minister's uh, 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 you know uh, leadership who was there a few days back and now is in turkey for the u.s. Uh, for the turkey africa meeting and that uh, mission in the north is uh, continuing the tplf force are also fighting against the government force but they are being pushed further away by the day uh, last night we have heard a breaking news uh, the last stronghold called Volja, which is located in the border town, uh, in the border between the uh, the Amhara and the Tigray regional state, is now a strategic location where war is intensified. In the next few hours, the NDF is saying that they will finish the job of taking the the uh, forces of the Tigray away from the uh, Amhara regional state. They have already done that job of freeing lands of the Afar regional state. So war has now come uh, to narrow places uh, in, the, in the Amhara and Tigray regional state border towns. We should report that airstrikes have continued. Uh, TPLF is saying civilians have been affected. The government is saying that strategic military locations were the ones uh, being targeted, and it was a successful mission. So, generally speaking, war, war is in continuation in the North.
0: Mali's Foreign Affairs Ministry has said Chad plans to deploy 1,000 additional soldiers to Mali to reinforce its troops battling insurgents there as France withdraws its military presence in Africa's Sahel region. Chadian soldiers make up nearly 1,400 of the United Nations' 13,000 troop peacekeeping force in North And central Mali. French troops are leaving Mali's Timbuktu. Earlier, they pulled out of the Kidal and Tessal bases in the north. Meanwhile, President Emmanuel Macron has cancelled a two-day trip to visit French troops in Mali. It was set to begin on Monday, but has been shelved as he deals with France's deteriorating COVID-19 situation. A security analyst in Bamako says the gains made in the war against jihadists risk being lost once the French forces leave.
14: without french troops we would no longer be talking about mali today however what should be done in my opinion mali should pull itself together so that the whole analysis of the situation can be done in good conditions and mali can come out of it well at the time when the united states wanted to step up africa command which is the command of american troops in africa i had envisaged that we would break this deadlock by structuring the zones of Mali into four defense zones and that each zone would be directed by an international force we could give each of these zones to France another to the United States, Russia or China then it would be up to each of these great powers to take care of not only of the security but also of the development and viability of these regions
0: Turkey's President Rajiv Tayyip Erdogan has held a series of meetings with various African leaders. He did this on the sidelines of the just-concluded third Turkey-Africa Cooperation Summit in Istanbul. In attendance were 16 heads of African states and over 100 ministers. Turkey says the country will walk alongside African friends on the road to development. The summit is aimed at expanding Turkey's diplomatic and trade ties with the African continent. You're watching Africa Live coming up in Business News. <music> Relatives of Ethiopian Airlines 737 MAX crash victims want Boeing executives prosecuted. And Ghana introduces new taxes on all electronic money transactions. Africa is a continent of diversity with varied climates and enchanting geography, and a people so distinct, but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent to bring you the untold stories, Let's have a look.
10: We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own
0: destiny.
14: I'd
19: make
0: tune in to Cairo, Cuba, Ethiopia, Tanzania. Africa Live. Find your voice. Families of those who died when a new Boeing 737 MAX aircraft operated by Ethiopian Airlines crashed shortly after takeoff in March 2019 have filed a legal motion against the US government. They accused the Justice Department of secretly drawing up a deferred prosecution agreement, which then enabled Boeing to get immunity from criminal prosecution. Ethiopian Airlines Flight 8302 crashed minutes after takeoff from Bole International Airport. That was the second crash involving a 737 MAX aircraft. Faulty flight control software was later found to have triggered both accidents in which 346 people died. To date, just one person has been indicted on criminal charges. That's the former Chief Technical Pilot Mark Faulkner. He stands accused of defrauding the U.S. Civil Aviation Regulator, the FAA, by deliberately withholding information about the flight control software known as MCAS. Ghana has introduced a 1.75% levy on electronic transactions. That levy comes into effect on the 1st of February next year. It covers mobile money payments, bank transfers, merchant payments and inward remittances. Reduan Karimi, Dini Osman reports from Accra.
10: Salome Ayete has been a mobile money vendor for 11 years. It's her only source of livelihood. She says the government's new tax on mobile money and all electronic transactions could threaten her source of income.
0: It will not help us because people already, they are complaining that they, uh, if they bring that and they will not do mobile money again. The business will collapse and it will affect us.
10: The government is introducing a 1.75% tax on mobile money payments and electronic bank transfers called e-Levy to shore up revenue generation. Ghana has more than 42 million mobile money accounts, according to the government's data. But like Ayete, many Ghanaians are against it.
8: When we are going to send money to someone, we see the charges to be high already. And we complain, even with the normal one. So them adding more to it. It's going to be complicated. When you collect a tax
15: and you don't make good use of
14: it, I don't see why the tax should be collected.
15: Go to the interland.
14: People are suffering.
10: Ghana's central bank says there are more than 19 million active mobile money accounts driving the digital financial services industry. The government says the e-levy is part of strategies to widen the country's tax net. It believes revenue generated from the levy will enhance financial inclusion and protect. The, vulnerable. the government says part of the money raised from the e-Levy will be used to support entrepreneurship, youth employment, digital and road infrastructure. But analysts fear these additional taxes could overburden citizens and also slow down the cashless drive in Ghana. They think the tax should be lowered.
15: What has happened in other countries is that when these things have happened, you find out that people have gone back to cash, and then government has not been able to raise the revenue, and then the jobs have been lost, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, when even they've gone back and reduced it, you know, the uptake has not gone back to what it was before then. We thought that something between 0.25 and 0.5 would have been a good one.
10: Salome Ayete agrees. She believes a downward adjustment of the tax will help prevent her business from collapsing. Ridwan Karim Dini Osman, CGTN, Accra, Ghana.
0: The South African Utility, ESCOM, has reported its first significant half-year profit for the first time since 2017. It reported $569.4 million in net earnings in the six months to end September. President Cyril Ramaphosa's government has been trying to restore ESCOM to profitability and improve performance and uptime in its vast fleet of ailing coal-fired power stations. Angela Kupula has the details from Johannesburg.
17: Jump in profits is good news, and projections for the full year are also a beat.
20: Effectively, um, your, your loss, uh, obviously, 15% tariff increase plus that 8% volume growth has come through in, in the numbers, together with, as I mentioned, Eskom's uh, cost control uh, focus of extracting 20 billion target out of our cost base. Uh, those two factors uh, contribute significantly to the reduction uh, in the loss uh, from your 18.9 billion to your forecasted 9 billion loss.
17: The debt pile has been reduced from 463.7 billion rand to 392.1 billion rand, but there's still the outstanding municipal debt.
13: Now sitting with municipal debt at 42.5 billion, it is unsustainable. ESCOM uh, can no longer borrow money at uh, 9.85% interest, and then keep on funding defaulting municipalities. We we really need a structural solution to this challenge. We are engaged with National Treasury on this, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that early in the new year we will continue our engagements and be able to find a solution.
17: The utility has made progress in unbundling its corporate structure into three units, generation, transmission and distribution. But questions around the debt and regional agreements remain. The most significant portion of the debt would then
20: follow generation and then the remaining would go to transmission and, and distribution. So you would expect that the largest portion of that 392 billion rand to go to generation.
13: We are engaging with participants in the uh, SAPP to seed their current agreements with ESCOM to the transmission company uh, because the transmission company is going to be the entity that is going to be responsible for international trading.
17: The utility is also going to free up some of its extensive land holdings via auctions to assist independent power producers. The rater says it's not a large revenue generator.
13: It is more intended to ease the immediate bottleneck that exists in terms of grid capacity to allow new generation plant to be brought into operation at the earliest opportunity.
17: The company is still in dire straits because of its debt burden and it's unlikely to be able to dig itself out of that hole anytime soon. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa.
0: The 18th edition of the world's 500 most influential brands list compiled by World Brand Lab was released on the 7th of December in New York. This year, China surpassed the UK and continues to hold fourth place, with 44 of its brands making the final cut. The world's 500 most influential brands list, which has been published annually for the past 18 years, covers 47 industries this year. With its excellent market performance and strong business growth, Google tops the list, pushing Amazon into second place due to its lower than expected results during the pandemic. Microsoft was ranked third. There are a number of chinese brands are on the rise including the construction machinery manufacturer Shuju construction machinery group or xcmg the 70-year-old firm exports its machinery to over 187 countries and regions worldwide in 2021 we built 21 residence water sellers and 20
4: water sellers for schools in african countries as part of our social responsibility
0: we also brought the engineering machinery into some campus so that the children in the schools can gain some knowledge on engineering manufacturing, stimulate their interest in the manufacturing industry. Through our efforts on the building of global brand, Kong will love to contribute more to our homeland. This is Africa Live coming up in sports.
1: welcome back and uh, that was uh africa live uh, for today uh sunday december 19th uh, 2021 and uh, that's going to uh, conclude our programming uh, for uh, this episode of the pan african journal this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast and uh, i am your host abayomi Azikawe. and if you'd like to have access uh, to this program All you need to do is go to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can also be copied and pasted on blogs and websites, as well as uh, the links being shared on social media networks, such as Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, all you need to do is go to the website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music uh, of the Charlie Parker Quintet uh, playing at Carnegie Hall on December 24th of 1949. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
21: Charlie Parker and the All-Stars. Thank you, and a very Merry Christmas to you.
1: Merry Christmas
21: to you. On piano, ladies and gentlemen, great gentleman, Al Haig. Al Haig on piano. (laughs) On trumpet, on trumpet, clean from Brooklyn, we bring you Red Rodney. (laughs) On bass, on bass, Tommy Potter. And finally on drums, Joe Hain. Did I say Joe? Well, you know I meant Roy. I didn't mean it really. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to start things off, based on how high the moon, here's ornithology.